Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 7th, 2022. Uh, December the 7th, of course, 81 years ago is a date that lives uh, in infamy. I don't know who invented that phrase, but of course, it's the day today. Uh, it is uh, Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, the day that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and essentially brought the Americans into the Second World War. Uh, Joe Biden is, I'm not sure if he's celebrating it, but he's memorializing it and respecting it. Interestingly enough, on Twitter, Susan Rice, a Democratic hawk, I guess, uh, wrote, uh, as a day we remember, uh, as we remember a day of infamy, we mourn the Americans taken from us at Pearl Harbor and honor the incredible courage and heroism of our greatest generation. The greatest generation, of course, is remembered as the generation that fought in the Second World War, supposedly uh, selflessly. There aren't many of those greatest generation left. 81 years ago, uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed and the few veterans left must be over 100. Um, but we're going to take a different take, I think, on Pearl Harbor Day and on World War II and uh, the so-called greatest generation today with my guest, Daniel Axt. Uh, he's the author of a new book called War by Other Means, the pacifists of the greatest generation who revolutionized uh, resistance. Uh, Daniel is joining us from New York City today. Uh, Daniel, the book is out today. Uh, rather ironic that it should be out on the day of uh, Pearl Harbor Memorial Day, Remembrance Day. Is that an intended irony or just coincidental? Uh, honestly, it's coincidence. Um, I, I, th there's no doubt in my mind that we owe um, our freedoms and, uh, and more to those who were willing to uh, fight in that uh, unfortunate war. Uh, all of that said, um, there's also, it, it's also worth remembering for a moment the small group who refused to take part for reasons of conscience uh, and who had uh, an outsized role in, in the decades that would come. So let's, um, let's address this uh, in your book, War by Other Means. You focus on the pacifists of the greatest generation who, who revolutionized resistance. I think it might be useful, Daniel, um, as an introduction to think historically. We've done a number of shows on American entrance into the First World War, which was enormously controversial. We did a show with Mark yes. Arsenal, for example, as a book out on the Impostors' War, the propaganda associated uh, with entrance or lack of entrance of America in the First World War. Did one with Neil Lank, Todd, who wrote a book about the approaching storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future. He writes about Jane Adams, of course, who won the Nobel Prize in 1931, a, a great opponent of the First World War. Do we need to historicize this? Of course, history always seems inevitable after it happens, but there was nothing necessarily inevitable about the 
Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor or American entrance into the first, Second World War, does it all need to be thought of in the context of the catastrophe of the First World War, the, the killing fields of Flanders? Well, uh I, I think the the I think that regret over the First World War really powered a very strong, very diverse national uh, anti-war and pacifist movement in the United States in in the interwar years and during the Depression. Uh, uh, as America hurtled toward uh, involvement in World War II, there was still a tremendous amount of opposition as well as foreboding. There was tremendous debate, as there had been in the previous war. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor ended that debate. Uh, there was already uh, a kind of undeclared naval war going on in the Atlantic. Um, I don't know if anything in history is inevitable, but I doubt that we could have avoided that, that conflict as much as we might have wished to do so. And I think the American people did wish to do so. But... Um, uh, it, it was not to be. Daniel, op uh, opposition to the Second World War, what you call pacifism, I guess, came from both left and right. You focus on the left, but there was also a conservative hostility to American interests in the Second World War, led by Charles Lindbergh and the American Firsters. Why don't you include them in your book? Uh, uh, that's a great question. And they, I, I, I deal with them briefly. Um, they did not have the lasting impact that the pacifists did, even though paradoxically their numbers were vastly greater than the pacifists. Um, when, um, and when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, the uh, opponents of war on the right uh, pretty much all just signed up and served in the armed forces, you know, if they were, if they were eligible, if they were men and, and, and of age and fit. Um, and in fact, something I think that was very unfortunate was that our country in the decades ahead was somewhat deprived of strong anti-war voices on the right. There had, there had been some uh, that, that persisted, but the, 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 those voices were, were largely silenced or discredited by uh, the events uh, uh, of World War II with Pearl Harbor and so forth. Uh, the pacifists were not against any particular war. They were against all of them. And uh, I suspect most Americans today were closer to the group that uh, was known for better or worse as isolationists, or we can call them anti-interventionists. And they believe that we should stay out of war if at all possible. Uh, we should stay out of foreign entanglements if possible. And we should be militarily strong in order to do that. Uh, the pacifists were against preparedness and were against militarism in every possible way. And, um, and they, um, uh, they had uh, a much greater role in the uh, post-war society, not immediately, but in the decades that followed. Yeah, we're going to get to that. You focus on four figures in the anti-war movement in the United States, David Dillinger, Dorothy Day, Dwight MacDonald, and Bayard Rustin. We're going to deal with each of those. But a lot of people are going to be watching, listening to this, uh, Daniel, thinking to themselves, do any of these people, are they pure, unadulterated pacifists? Would they ever justify war? Or was this the essential principle? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine a war which, I'm not sure if it pitted good against evil, but it was certainly fought against evil. We did a, a show with a novelist, Kristen Beck. Uh, she has a new 
World War II book out called The Winter Orphans. And she says, suggested to me that World War II remains so seductive for novelists because it provides a, a wonderful opportunity. I'm not sure if it's a wonderful, a, a perfect opportunity for writing about the struggle between good and evil. With the, the pacifists you write about, could they ever imagine justifying war or were all wars, any kind of violence out of the question for them morally? Well, that's a great that's a great issue that you raise, and the answer is that um, for the most part, they they they. It, let me rephrase that. Um, all of them opposed war. As simply, I, I can I can't put it any more simply than that. They opposed war. They opposed all wars. They opposed this one, and if if they opposed this one, it's fair to say that they opposed all of them, and that was what they said. Now. There was a spectrum of opinion. They would sometimes be asked uh, by a local draft board or something, you know, what would you do if somebody attacked you or uh, tried to kill your mother and you were standing by and, you know, how would you respond and so on? And there was a spectrum of views on this. Um, Jesse Wallace Hugan, who was the founder of the War Resisters League, which was the more secular of the two major um, anti-war uh, organizations at that time, said that um, uh, the, the assassination of Hitler might have been justified. And certainly if someone attacked her, she would attempt to defend herself, as I recall. Uh, but what she was against was war, massive, uncontrolled violence uh, on a massive scale, in, inevitably in, in a swallowing up millions of innocents. So, so, you know, she drew that important distinction. Now, there were others who just, uh, some of the people I focus on in particular, who simply shunned violence even when their own safety was at stake. Um, and and even they sometimes strayed from that. So it, but, it's but not Daniel, I, I take the point, and, and you're obviously not speaking on behalf of them, but how, how would they respond to the argument, even in 1940, 41, or in 39 with Munich and the, the Nazi invasion and appropriation of Czech, Czechoslovakia and Poland and, and, and Scandinavia and, and, and France, did they suggest we'd simply stand by and this is in 1939 or 41 before Auschwitz before the Holocaust before the death camps did they simply say we should do nothing against Germany and Hitler yeah. and in fact for Pearl Harbor um the I, I think that they they had a number of responses they would say well let's see uh it's we, we think it's a very bad thing if Germany invades France, but why is it okay if, uh, if uh, France invades North Africa or Indochina? Why is it uh, bad if Germany uh, attacks Britain, but uh, uh, permissible for Britain to occupy India? Uh, they had some, the, 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 in addition, at that time, the Soviet Union uh, was in some sense dividing Europe uh, between itself and the Nazis. And the question arose, who, who should we fight, you know? Uh, which of What's these your dictators? take on this? I mean, are you sympathetic? You've dedicated a lot of time to this new book, War by Other Means. Do you think they have a point that, uh, that uh, there is a moral equivalent between French colonization of North Africa or, or British imperialism and, and, and German declaration of war on most of Europe? Uh, I, I suspect there is uh, some significant equivalency there. But if you're asking for my view, I say the following. Um, I think with respect to this particular war, they were wrong. And um, what's interesting about them, though, is that um, 
about most subsequent ones, overwhelmingly, they were right. And in addition to which, their, um, their emphasis on, um, on conscience and equality and so forth helped them to um, uh, play a major role in the civil rights movement to come, in the movement against the Vietnam War, in the movement against colonialism and apartheid and so forth. So, um, you know, George Orwell had an answer for British pacifists. He said, basically, you know, you're free riders. You're here, you're here and able to do what you are doing and live your lives only because of the men bearing arms to defend this island. Uh, but I think that throughout the war, American pacifists, uh, as wrongheaded as they may have been about that particular conflict, performed a very important function in calling America to conscience, in saying that it was a terrible thing to round up and intern uh, Japanese Americans from the West Coast, that we should not bomb civilians, that the use of atomic weapons was, was a terrible thing, uh, that uh, European Jewry faced destruction and that we should admit far more Jewish emigrants uh, from Europe. Uh, again and again, they played... Uh, uh, yeah, and I take the point, but Daniel, yeah. those are, again, you're, you're collapsing a lot of different things. I mean, you can be in favor yeah. of the war and be critical of American internment of, ja of Japanese people. You can be in favor of the war and be strongly in favor of, of letting uh, European Jews into America. Th those two things yeah. aren't in yeah. any way incompatible. Th th that's true, although not, not many people uh, held both sets of views. Uh, so I make no, I make no um, uh, great argument for um, their refusal to fight in that war, which I think un unfortunately had to be fought. Uh, what the best argument seems to me, uh, we did a show with the, um, the, the historian Matthew Delmont. Uh, he has a, an important new book out, Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Seems from an American point of view, the best argument could have been that America was uh, responsible morally for its uh, exploitation, for the injustice of African-Americans. Um, and of course, one of uh, the men that you focus on in your book is, um, is uh, not... Uh, Bayard Rustin. Yeah, Bayard Rustin, who um, we're, we're looking for him. Uh, who is an African-American activist very much involved in the 60s as well. Is that the best argument, do you think, especially for African-Americans and particularly the way in which they were treated if they actually signed up to fight the war? It's so horrifying, so shameful. Uh, I think all of those, it was shameful and it was wrong. And the pacifists were at the forefront of criticizing America's treatment of black citizens. All of that said, they, they certainly wouldn't have fared any better under Hitler or, or uh, any of the others uh, on the other side. Um, I, I think that um, it, it, black Americans confronted this uh, dilemma more directly, naturally, and uh, they, they, pursued, they, they pursued a strategy that had been advocated in the black press, which was the double V strategy, which was to uh, uh, contribute in every way to victory in the war, and then to claim victory at home over prejudice and discrimination and, and, and racism and so forth. Um, so I, uh, the, the pacifists were absolutely at the forefront of criticizing uh, America's racial system at that time. And uh, whether that was an argument to, to say that we somehow should not fight a war that uh, 
really it was awfully difficult to avoid. I, I, don't I mean, think I think the argument is not that it, it wasn't a general pacifist argument, my sense at least, when it comes yeah. to African-Americans. They shouldn't have been fighting in the war. I don't know about white Americans. Let, let's stand back and, and talk more broadly about the numbers of conscientious objectors. I think there were, what, 43,000 men? in 1940 who were granted conscientious objector status. How did that work? Did you simply have to claim you weren't willing morally to fight a war? Uh, you Under the 1940 Draft Act, which imposed the first peacetime draft in American history, a provision was made, special provisions were made for people who objected to war uh, on, on the basis of conscience. And uh, nobody wanted a repeat of the situation in the Great War, in, during which uh, objectors and pacifists were harshly treated and civil liberties were trampled in some arenas. So there was a provision made. And what you would do is you register for the draft. And if you, if you were a, wanted to be a conscientious objector because of your pacifism, you would uh, fill out a special form and go before your local draft board, of which the there were some more 3,000 in the, you know, the American decentralized system is on display here. And you would go before your local draft board and you had to have a religious basis for your conscientious objection. You could not simply say, I'm against war because I just think it's a bad thing, but I'm an atheist. You also could not say, I'm against this particular war and that other wars are, might be okay. You had to oppose all wars and you had to have a religious basis. And usually you had to be a member or associated in some way with one of the acknowledged peace churches, such as uh, the Quakers, the Brethren, the Mennonites. Um, but it was really somewhat all over the map. Some Jews did get uh, conscientious objector status. Uh, some Catholics managed to get it. And um, there was uh, an attempt to uh, really hammer out a certain um, kind of... Um, theological or doctrinal basis for pacifism in both religions uh, under the circumstances I just described. So it was really all over the lot. And some people who didn't get it ended up in prison because they would not cooperate. They wouldn't go into the service and they, wouldn't, they hadn't been granted conscientious objector status. Uh, Daniel, we're doing a show tomorrow on the Wobblies, uh, uh, on socialist American socialist opposition to the First World yes. War. Was I going to do a show with Adam Hothschild, who has a book out about this uh, later next year? Would it be fair to say that the reaction against pacifism in the Second World War was less violent, less dramatic than it was in the First World War? I agree with. I think that's. I think that's correct. I think people had learned from the First World War um, um, how horrible war was. Uh, how ambiguous uh, uh, its consequences could be. Uh, there was a lot of regret from that war. And I think people regretted the treatment, the, the divisiveness and the treatment of objectors or at least opponents to the war, let's call them. Adam Hochschild himself wrote a wonderful book uh, of, uh, about uh, opposition to World War I in Great Britain uh, that helped to inspire my book uh, about World War II in the United States. And um, so... Um, you know, I think that um, uh, there was a certain respect people had for um, um, uh, religious pacifism, which is what we're largely talking about here. There were secular pacifists as well. And in fact, during the war, America's religious past tended to become more secular. And there was, of course, no equivalent in the Second World War to Eugene Debs, was there? There was no 
really prominent figure, a political figure had run for president who then got imprisoned and then later Harding let him out of prison and even greeted him in the White House. There was no equivalent. Is it, is it fair for better or worse to Debs in the Second World War? I think that's fair to say. There were there were people like Norm Thomas, the great socialist leader who had run for president repeatedly. Um, but when after Pearl Harbor, even most pacifists after Pearl Harbor, if they didn't change their spots, at the very least, they they they, uh, they went silent. Uh, and um, uh, there was very little open opposition. Uh, pacifists recognized that they would have very little a success in trying to sway public opinion. And, and very importantly, they shifted their folks uh, away from the war and away from the left's historical emphasis on labor and economic justice. They shifted to race, which was the, America's moral Achilles heel. And they recognized that. And, and that civil rights became an early focus uh, for uh, uh, World War II pacifists. So, so for you, is Ruskin really, uh, you, you write about four in particular, Dellinger, Day, MacDonald and Ruskin, but is Ruskin for you the sort of the, the most symbolic of figures? Because, of course, he carried his experience of opposition to the World War II to the 1960s and civil rights and was an important figure in importing nonviolent principles of Gandhi into American civil rights resistance. Well, Rustin is certainly a central figure and an absolutely fascinating and compelling guy. What an extraordinary Yeah, tell us a little man. bit about him, Bayard Rustin. Not everyone will know about him. Yeah, Bayard Rustin uh, uh, grew up in a family in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, not too far from Philadelphia. It was kind of a Quaker world. He became a Quaker, even though I don't believe he was born one. He never never uh, didn't know his birth father, except as a young, as a teenager, he found out uh, who the man was. Uh, he, um, and you know, Rustin's memoirs, or, or um, uh, I guess, a I believe it's a collection of his essays is called um, Time on Two Crosses, because he, he, he was not only black, uh, but he was gay. And um, at that time, this was, these were certainly very difficult things to be. And Rustin would simply not countenance discrimination. Uh, Rustin acted and lived in a colorblind fashion. And, um, and he was just an, an incredible figure who would later go on to be a key advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. And helping to, um, uh, uh, to demonstrate the importance to King of, of, of adhering rigorously to nonviolence and that the civil rights movement could succeed on that basis. Uh, and so he, and in addition, he, he, he was an organizational genius as well as a brilliant singer. Uh, and, and so he, he played an important behind the scenes organizational role in the civil rights movement. And it had to be behind the scenes because uh, there was a famous episode in Pasadena uh, in the, in the fifties uh, during, uh, in, in which he was arrested on uh, uh, sex charges uh, and um, it really damaged him. It, it made it it made it necessary for him to remain in the background during the civil rights movement uh, in in a way that uh, was was unfortunate. What many people don't know is when he was in prison as a draft resistor uh, during the war, there was a similar episode leading uh, an attempt to um, overcome uh, segregation at a federal prison. 
and he um, uh, he was uh, uh, it, it emerged that uh, he had uh, had sex with some inmates, uh, some fellow inmates, and um, he denied it, and it was kind of a disaster. It really destroyed the uh, effort within the prison. Uh, and destroyed his credibility uh, and uh, damaged him with the Fellowship of Reconciliation and so on, where, where he was working. Uh, uh, let's so, talk um, about, so, so let's talk about a couple of the other figures you talk about, Dwight McDonald yeah. and um, David Dellinger, uh, again, pacifists, leftists, members of the American elite. Uh, are there more, I guess, traditional pacifists, Dellinger and uh, McDonald? How would you define them? Uh, I think I think you could say that, but I think there's something very important I want to I want to mention about them as well as the others, uh, which is that um, they they there was a strong uh, anarchist or libertarian uh, dimension to their views and and to their worldview, um, um, to or to their to their uh, behavior even. Um, uh, both were uh, children of privilege, relatively speaking. Both had gone to Yale. Uh, Dellinger had been a great athlete in his youth. MacDonald was a um, quicksilver intellectual, sharp of tongue, uh, a brilliant writer and critic. And um, MacDonald started a little magazine that even though uh, th that despite its tiny circulation was hugely influential, it was read by a young Noam Chomsky, among this others. This is Review, right? No, well, this was after he left Partisan Review because of his opposition to war. So the magazine he started, the journal he started, was called Politics with a lowercase p. And it was reread by people like... Um, right. So some people might be listening to classic kind of intellectuals, leftist intellectuals with their head in the clouds. I mean, they were worldly figures. Surely they, they recognized, especially from the left, the evil of, of Nazism and fascism. How could they justify not fighting in the Second World War? Well, you have to go back and look at the situation. I mean, uh, we talk about the left understanding them to fight fascism. In fact, the American left was uh, significantly opposed to any U.S. involvement in the war before because of the agreement between the, the Soviet Union yeah. and the Nazis. That to, doesn't uh, to, uh, speak very highly either of, of the American left. I mean, it's not right. just true of the American left. It was also true of the European left. Um, and right. let's also talk uh, about uh, the one woman who you focus on, Do Dorothy Day, who fits much more into the, uh, the religious conscientious objector. Was she the, the classic moral religious objector, a Catholic? Uh, really not because because American American pacifism had been largely Protestant to the to the except to the extent to which it was socialist, but Dorothy Day made made pacifism Catholic. She was a convert to Catholicism, but a devout Catholic. She started the Catholic Worker Movement to feed the poor, all in, in with with outlets in 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 maybe three dozen American cities with with the the central facility in New York. And she started a famous newspaper called The Catholic Worker, which had uh, already gotten in trouble during the Spanish Civil War by, a, by refusing to take sides in that conflict. And then during World War II, circulation plummeted because she opposed the war throughout. Uh, and uh, I should add, though, that David Dellinger was a seminary student when he refused um, to register for the draft. He would have been exempt. He refused to avail himself 
of that exemption. So he was also a religious objector. He was a student at Union Theological Seminary in New York and uh, always was a spiritual person, even when he had he had left uh, uh, the church, left Protestantism behind. Your, your book suggests that, as you say, you, you don't necessarily support them, but the major legacy is, is learning pacifism for future wars. Talk briefly, uh, Daniel, about what these four and their associates learned about the strategy of opposing wars, particularly, of course, Vietnam in the 1960s and early 70s. Uh, yeah, great question. You know, so these these folks in some ways explored a modern style of protest uh, involving what was known as direct action. Uh, they they would take to the streets. They would they would um, they would stage a sort of um, a protest that were uh, half media oriented. You know, uh, they um, they uh, they developed a, an ability. They first of all developed a, a, a great endurance because they they had been in prison. They were willing to buck society's um, uh, disapproval, uh, and then going forward, they were in, they were just reflexively opposed to to any military action. And um, when you look at the decades following the war, uh, World War II. Um, America's military involvements have not uh, had the desired outcome, I think, by and large. And um, if you had just decided to reflexively oppose all of them, you would have been, you probably would have been right most of the time. Um, well, certainly Korea is arguable. Vietnam is fairly self-evident. And then the smaller yeah. wars. And so I'm curious, and we always seem to be fighting the previous war. So in World War II, they, people were thinking about the First World War. Then in right. Vietnam, we were thinking about World War II. In, in 2022, Daniel, with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, do you think that in some ways pacifism itself is a little bit out of fashion? It's no longer appropriate that Vietnam is not the relevant war anymore? Well, you know, Vietnam was, was one war. Uh, there have been others uh, uh, with respect to Ukraine, the analogy might be toward arming arming Britain. You know Roosevelt's position, uh, which I think the American people by and large supported, was that we we should not let Britain fall and we should not get into the war if we can avoid it. And uh, so you, the United States uh, styled itself the arsenal of democracy. Uh, arms were shipped to Britain. Uh, people sent packages of woolen socks and and the like, canned goods. And, um, you know, I think it was an understanding that um, if the if the Brits would fight, we should at least arm them. And I, I think the American people are not uh, a pacifist people. Historically, though, uh, America has did traditionally until World War II, uh, until World War One, I, I guess, stay out of foreign wars and uh, try to conduct its foreign policy with a free hand without the constrainment of uh, all kinds of um, associations and so forth. That changed after World War II. Um, but uh, so it's hard to say where pacifism seems to ebb and flow. And uh, lots of people are what might be called fair weather pacifists. And then when push comes to shove, they they take a different view. It's a it's a tragedy of human life that that wars persist. And while the folks in my book had a great deal of success in helping to bring about important social change, they didn't succeed in abolishing or eliminating war. And I doubt that anyone will succeed at that, unfortunately. Finally, um, let's just 
end, uh, we began talking about the greatest generation. Um, your, your subtitle, I'm not sure if you came up with it, the pacifists of the greatest generation who revolutionized resistance. Is there a polemical intent there? The greatest generation, as, as Susan Rice re reminds us today on Twitter, is supposed to be associated with courage and heroism in war. Do you think we need to rethink the term greatest generation and think not just the people who involved themselves in war, but people who sacrificed in a different way, sacrificed indeed their own personal safety and credibility in the name of pacifism, in the name of their deep moral opposition to war itself? Uh, that's a wonderful question. And I think I would answer strongly, uh, the pacifists in my book are absolutely uh, entitled to membership in the greatest generation. They're not, it's not just an accident of birth. They were extraordinary people. They were people of incredible courage. They, 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 they certainly put their, their money, their lives, you name it, uh, on the line uh, 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 in the cause of their uh, beliefs. And they also contributed in their way to the freedoms that were preserved by people like my father-in-law who fought in World War II.